When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello and welcome to The Nuanced Life, Episode 9, which we are recording on a snowy Tuesday in Kentucky. Sarah is in her closet avoiding her children for a little bit because everybody's out of school. I banished my child from the house for a while so that I could do some writing. And we are going to just do our best to talk our way through parenting in the wintertime, some listener feedback. And then in our main segment, we're going to talk about recovery for non-addicts, which is a topic that has been on my mind since listening to one of Oprah's Super Soul Conversations. And we'll end, as always, with something a little bit inspirational to send us on our way. So we are looking like we'll be facing an entire week of snow days, which... I love snow. And this is very pretty snow, fluffy, piled high on the trees snow. Um, And I like it for approximately two, three days. If we're looking at a full week, I'm going to start getting a little antsy. So I feel no guilt about parenting during the winter about lots of TV and video games. Don't feel bad about it. Uh, We like to play board games. One of my favorite um, parenting during the winter or break tricks is I make both boys, big boys lay down in my king size bed with me and on either side. So they're not touching each other and can't distract one another. And then we set the Alexa timer for 20 minutes and you have to lay there with your eyes closed and not move. If the timer goes off and you're still awake, cool. You can get up and go be your best self. Usually they fall asleep. And I'm a big believer in nap times, even for older kids. I just think it makes them generally more agreeable when when the schedules get all bananas because of snow days and and breaks. Uh, So we've been doing that. Those are our, that's, that's my um, big approach. I guess I just try to keep things like I try to like free up and we're, we're having fun and we're, and we're doing fun things, but we're not going to just never go to bed and eat sugar all day because that seems like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, the hardest thing for us is that my daughters both really need a schedule. They mm. are they are their best selves when we're getting up in the morning and having breakfast and going off to our days, coming back in the afternoon and we've got our our evening routine down, you know, dinner, bath, books, bed. When we deviate from that, it's a struggle. 
Mm. And so we're a few days into deviating from that. And we are very much about we still make our bed in the morning. We still do all of our morning Mm -hmm. chores as though we were going to school. I have found one pajama day max. After that, we're all putting clothes on again because we lose our minds when everybody's walking around in their pajamas all day. That's so true. But I love pajama day so much. I love it, too. I've just realized that I can't love it for myself at the expense of all of our sanity because Mm -hmm. they really lose it. I mean, they really are different people when they just get their clothes on. We are strict observers of nap time as well. Jane is seven. She will still sleep for an hour in the afternoon. I mean, if we just tell her she gets mad sometimes, sometimes she wants to go lie down. But as soon as she lies down, she's asleep. I I am a big believer in that rest, too. And then Ellen, our two and a half year old, has slept for four hours the past couple of days in the afternoon. I think she must be like hitting a growth spurt or having a tooth come in or something. I just sent Felix to my mom's house to nap today because we have friends over and the big kids are just there. Even in my nice big new house, like they they just cannot keep their wits about them and stay away from his room and be quiet. They woke him up yesterday and I threatened to make them all go live in the snow for the rest of the day because that's my number one crime in my house is waking up a napping baby. My friends also have a super genius uh, tactic they used a few years ago when we had like two weeks of snow day. They just went and got a hotel room and went swimming. Found a hotel with an indoor pool, booked a room, went swimming, had slept, had a slumber party in the hotel room just to break up the monotony and spend some energy, which I think is genius as well. That is genius. Although I am in a period of not spending money at all right now. And so that's been part of our struggle too. I don't want to take them shopping. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go out to eat. I'm trying very hard to say, what do we have that can get us through these days? And one thing Mm -hmm. that I have found that's been a real revelation to me If I, like, say, wait downstairs and run upstairs and grab a basket and put an odd combination of things we already have in that basket and take it to them and say, these are your materials, you're going to make a zoo, or these are your materials, let's create some snowmen from them or whatever, it's like everything's brand new. Yeah. All their old stuff has new life because I have configured it in a bizarre way that they've not seen before. Well, I also am a firm believer in music. So we just put, my friend is here. She has an almost two-year-old. He's about to turn two in a few weeks. So Felix is two and a half. We put them in Felix's room. We put up the baby gate. It's full of kid toys. And we turned on kid music on Pandora on the Amazon Echo. And they stayed up there for like an hour and a half. Like once you put, there's something about music that they play much longer. I don't know if it's like they feel like they're not alone. It's just you feel like that they're in a um, sort of occupied space. I don't know what it is, but if I send my kids up to play in the quiet, five minutes later, they're down there bugging me. I turn on music, they'll be up there for an hour and a half. I agree with music. We've turned on a lot of Lori Berkner around here lately, a lot of Taylor Swift. We had a good little dance party in the basement the other day with all the lights off. So music has been really helpful to us too. But I will say pretty as the snow is i'm ready to get back to normal yeah and it's just hard because it's so soon after christmas break like we were just about to get back like i had so many i like the most amazing work days last week like finally getting back to it and now no no more but that's okay because i begged for the snow because it felt like for two months since early december there was forecast for snow two weeks away and by the time we got to that week it was gone and it would but then two weeks away there was forecast and i was about to lose my mind i wanted some dang snow so i'm happy it's here i'm soaking it up i'll have sad lonely snow days soon enough when i'm an old lady so 
I'm ready. I like I like having the house full of rowdy kids. See, I like to think that when I am older and my children aren't here anymore, I'm going to have amazing snow days. Like I'm going to wake up and make mimosas and then cook some wonderful soup that takes hours and lots of chopping and lots of thought. Like I'm going to read some books. I mean, I have some plans for when I don't have little ones to entertain during my snow days. I mean, listen, I'm an only child. There's nothing I like more than quiet and to be in total control of my every movement. However, I have a constant refrain from, you know, all the older, more wise women in my life at church or at City Hall or just, you know, I I spend a lot of time in a wide generational mix in my life in Paducah. And like I said, the constant refrain is that the days are long, but the years are short. You'll see, you'll see when they're all gone. You'll miss them so bad. You'll miss these times. You'll miss when your house was rowdy and crazy and full of noise And, um, I believe them. I believe them. I think that there is solitude is lovely, but there is something about little kids that is so special. It makes me think this is a weird example, but I'm reading Alias Grace right now, which is what I think I'm thinking. I just started it. Um, there's a scene in the Handmaid's Tale when the Mexico delegation comes and they bring in the children that the, the colony has. And it's just like, you know, they're just, they're just kind of magic. Yes. They drive us crazy, but there is something magical about little kids. And so I'll be sad when these days are over. Well, I agree with that too. I'm just saying I can love today and love the vision of tomorrow at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) So related, we got an email from Carrie following up on our discussion last week. I mentioned that I feel very much like our life feels like Jenga because Mm we live in an area where we don't have any family. And so we have everything kind of stacked up. But if you move a piece, things fall apart. And Carrie really related to that. And she recognized when she looked around in her life that everyone she knows has at least one of three things going on. Family nearby who are willing and able to help out. Enough money to buy serious help, not just childcare, like a nanny who could work long hours enough to cover the cost of cover the commuting and working time and who would also cook and clean um, and enough money to eat out a lot or get takeout or one parent who worked from home. And she said, I'm not saying that that's an easy situation if you have these things, but it makes life possible as long as nothing goes seriously wrong. And she realized with her husband that they didn't have any of those things. Uh, So she decided to leave her job, start her own business, and now she is, as listeners of Pantsuit Politics know, our Mideast expert. (laughs) Carrie has a consulting business um, related to foreign policy and is just super smart and an awesome person. But I think she's right about those three factors, that it is really, really difficult to have a family that is functioning without some other hands and some serious resources. I mean, I 3000% agree so much so that that's why I changed my entire life um, about, gosh, almost 10 years ago. I don't know if I've told the story. I know I haven't told the story in the own life. I'm not really sure I've told it in entirety on Pantsuit Politics, but my husband and I have been married for five years. I tell people it wasn't a biological clock. It was a biological light switch. I like woke up one day and every cell in my body was like, you need to have a baby right now. I'd always desperately wanted kids. I definitely wanted to be a mom, but like... I wasn't ready, and I thought I was going to have a kid in law school. That would have been a f- super foolish. Glad I didn't do that. Um, and I just woke up and was like, I need a kid. Well, we lived in Washington, D.C. on a third-floor walk-up. My husband worked approximately 60 hours, probably a week, always worked weekends. And I just looked around and thought, 
I mean, like I, I kind of done digging on daycare and Capitol Hill. It's really hard to get into blah, blah, blah. And I just looked around and was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this here. I'm not doing it this way. There isn't a little bit of me that wants to raise kids like this. I loved the way I was raised um, in Paducah, surrounded by family and a community that really focuses on kids. And so um, I convinced my husband to move back to Paducah. That's how we ended up here. I was uh, already pregnant, six months pregnant with Griffin when we moved back here. And, you know, it's just, I tell people, you know, I have a friend in New York City and she's like, I swear you have more hours in the day. And I'm like, I mean, I do think about my life. It's not just that. I have amazing family that lives nearby. My parents live up the street. My stepdad is a real estate agent. He has a super flexible schedule. I mean, literally today, they came and got Felix, took him to lunch, and then took him back to their house for a nap. Come on. That's like gold standard. Um, It's not just the family. Nicholas's work schedule is now much more flexible. He literally never works weekends. Um, we have more expendable income because we live in a place with a very low cost of living. And we live in a place that there's like, just, I call it a seven minute town. Like there's no transport time. So I literally do have more time in the day because I don't spend a lot of time transporting myself. When I want to go to the grocery store, it takes three and a half minutes. So, you know, it's just all those things add up to like, there's, there is absolutely no way that I think even if one of those things were were missing, if we lived in a suburb with a a long commute time, if we had a slightly higher cost of living, if we didn't have family nearby, like if just one of those things were missing, I would not be, I would not have run for office. I would not be doing this podcast. Like I just, there would have been no flexibility in my life. I probably wouldn't have three kids if I'm being really honest. Um, And so I think she's dead on about all those factors. They make such a huge impact on just, you have more processing power, you have more energy. And those two things are so huge because kids um, take a lot. They just do. And the more help you have and the more resources you have, the more joy it is to raise them honestly is how I feel. They're not as stressful. And it's just, yeah, I can't, I cannot fathom missing one of those jingle blocks. I'll be honest. So I had the enough money to buy help component while I was working. And the one parent who worked from home, my husband, when he is not traveling, is at home. When he was traveling, that block being missing was huge. Mm, it was so incredibly difficult for me when he was out of town, especially when he was out of town for more than two or three days at a time. We have never had the family nearby part. And it's interesting when I think about how I grew up, I think I just took for granted family being nearby. I didn't really think about it. We lived literally across the yard from my grandmother mm-hmm. on a farm. And my grandmother really helped raise me and was a huge part of everything I did, everywhere I went, everything I thought. When I yep. think about uh, the the wisdom and the phrases that come to mind so often for me, she's more than 50% of them. I always I mean, forget we was, have that in common. Like my grandmother lived four houses up for me. Yeah, she, she was just a, an enormous part of my life growing up. And it just never really occurred to me, I think because I've always been so career focused, um, that I would move back home to create that with my family. There are lots of times when I wish that my family would move closer to me, but I've never thought about going in that direction, mostly because there just isn't much that I would be able to do there. 
Mm-hmm. So having changed all of that in my life, it's an interesting time and it's something that I think about a lot. But all this to say, wow, it's bad that we don't have more support for each other than this mm-hmm. around something that is as fundamental to our country as having families. Well, I will say this, though, about the family nearby, and I noticed this with you and a bunch of other friends. See, my parents would, like, never, ever keep all my kids while we went on vacation. Like, that's just not on the table. But you get that when your parents are far away because they're, like, totally willing to, like, come and watch them for a week or so while you go on vacation. So there is a small trade-off with the family situation. Yeah. I mean, our our kids are going to have a totally different understanding of grandparents than I did. They're going to have that sense of, oh, we're going to grandmother's for a week, mm-hmm. you know? pack up the car. Let's go have fun. It's a, it is a completely different relationship. My, our grandparents aren't involved in discipline at all. Right. I mean, they're just, they're fun grandparents. And so I don't know, um, what their perspective is on which way they'd prefer to have it, but there are definitely pros and cons. Yeah. We have to, we've had to have that conversation with my stepfather who just honestly and sincerely, every time they ask for anything, he says, but they want it. I mean, he, he, to, in his heart, but they want it. And we're like, and my, and my husband said to him, like, Ron, that would be fine if you lived 3,000 miles away and you only saw them once a week, like every six months. But you're basically like their third parent. So you can't just be giving them every single thing they want all the time. Does he, does he follow those instructions? Mm, sort of, kind of, <laughs> not most of the time, but it is what it is. I'm sure there is a lot of family conflict that we don't have to navigate because of the way that our lives are arranged. Mm -hmm. Well, up next, we are going to talk about Gratitude and Trust, which is a book by Paul Williams and Tracy Jackson that encourages everyone to go through recovery, whether you are an addict or not. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Beth, tell us about the podcast you recently heard with Oprah and the um, recovery for non-addicts. Paul Williams was on with Oprah and his friend Tracy Jackson. Paul Williams is a very accomplished American composer and songwriter. He wrote uh, The Rainbow Connection. Kermit the Frog's signature song oh, as well. Oh, I didn't realize that's who this was. Okay. Yes. And uh, We've Only Just Begun, that was the Carpenters' biggest hit. He also wrote Evergreen, I think, Barbara Streisand. So he's he's been a big deal throughout his career. Tracy Jackson is a big deal, too. She was one of the writers on Confessions of a Shopaholic and has done a lot of interesting things in Hollywood. The two of them together have written a book called Gratitude and Trust, Six Affirmations That Will Change Your Life. And the story is that Paul was addicted to drugs and alcohol for many, many years and finally went through a recovery process and is now, as he describes himself, the Pali Lama. He said that he's such an advocate (laughs) for, uh, for recovery and everything that he's learned. 
But what I love about the two of them is that they've taken the principles that addicts use to recover and distilled them in a way that can be applicable beyond addiction. So there are six affirmations that are the foundation of their book. But but the book itself and the conversation they had with Oprah that was so touching to me was about how fundamentally all of us, in varying degrees, are avoiding our lives in many ways. We're using shopping, food, relationships, distractions, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. We're using something as a buffer between us and our feelings. Mm. and the real experience of being a human who is alive. And I just thought that was really powerful and something worth talking about. But I'll run through the six affirmations and then um, let you react because I've been talking for a while here. The first one is, something needs to change, and it's probably me. Second, I don't know how to do this, but something inside me does. Third, I will learn from my mistakes and not defend them. Fourth, I will make right the wrongs I've done wherever possible. Fifth, I will continue to examine my behavior on a daily basis. And sixth, I will live my life in love and service, gratitude and trust. And I think those are amazing. They're amazing. So the first one, something needs to change. And it's probably me. When you said that to me before we started recording, I said, something needs to change. And it might as well be me because I can't change anybody else. That's kind of how I feel about it. It's so true. And you know, I'm here, I think I'm here that with the pragmatic reality in the face of your optimism, as is our as is our pattern. Because again, as is our pattern. <laughs> I mean, that sounds great. But the reality is you don't have a choice, friends, because you can't change anybody else. Trust me, I've spent 36 years trying to fight that. It just doesn't work. It's so terrible. You don't even get to change your kids, which is so not what they tell you when you're playing with baby dolls. Thanks for the lie, culture. <laughs> You know, I feel like that is the lesson of the last two years for me. Something needs to change, and it's probably me. Because I've blamed a lot of things for my unhappiness. Uh, I blamed my commute for a long stretch of time. I would be happier if I could live closer to my job and not spend so much time in my car. I would be happier if I had a different role at my job. I would be happier if I had a different boss. I would be happier if I were thinner. I, you know, I, I have a lot of things that I have used as excuses to feel mostly dissatisfied with my life. And I think that the past two years have really helped me understand. No, it's me. It's just me. It's not the commute. <laughs> but listen, commute is, but I think that's hard because I think that when you say something needs to change and it's probably me, I don't know. I do because, you know, I'm a like total resource Sherpa. I really do believe that changing things like your diet and your space and um, your exercise routine or whatever it is can be the something that needs to change. But I also count that in the category of it's probably me. Does that make sense? Yes. Here's an and that I would like to tack on. I think that changing all those parts only works if they are effects, not cause. Because I feel like you can go through all different iterations of things until you know who you are Mm. and then start to build all those things around that. 
I think you can change out parts endlessly and never find greater satisfaction. No, that's true. Cause I really do believe like Gretchen Rubens, you know, her first rule is be Gretchen. And like, you have to be yourself. You have to understand yourself. You have to be comfortable with yourself. You have to, I think a big um, part of this for me is sort of of this lesson is the difference between your identity and your roles and a huge source of, um, I really don't, can I also say, okay, I want to interrupt this thought. I don't like the word happiness. I think it's not what we're talking about. That also bothers me. I was watching comedian in cars, getting coffee, love that show. And it was, um, Seinfeld, obviously, and Stephen Colbert, who I adore. I actually don't watch a show. I just adore him as a person. I never watched a show on Comedy Central either, <laughs> but I really love him. And he's so brilliant on, um, life and suffering. And he was just, he, and they were talking about like, I think happiness, I think the pursuit of happiness is dumb. Like, I think that's not really the goal is not to just be happy. Like, I don't think, I think it's too shallow of a word for what we're talking about. Um, but with Gretchen Rubin, you know, I think understanding yourself, I think you're right. Like you have, there has to be self-awareness in that it can't be, if I change my diet, this will make me happy and solve all my problems. It has to be, okay, I accept myself as I am, but I see the effects of this diet and how I, I, I see that, you know, I'm a moderation person or I'm an, I need to abstain from this because I can't just eat a little bit of it. And I, and I go down this behavioral pattern. And so how do I, you know, move these, these bricks of ground to change it? Because I think there's also a, a danger of this, of when you say something needs to change and it's probably me. Although that doesn't go with gratitude and trust, but I do think there's a risk that people get into like, oh, I'll just willpower my way through this. Like I'm the weak link. I'm the problem. I just need to try harder. I don't do that. I don't subscribe to that. I don't think it's helpful. I absolutely agree with all of that, particularly that happiness isn't the goal. I think something like satisfaction or contentment is closer to it. We don't have a good English word for it. That's the problem. That's true. I definitely subscribe to Brooke Castillo's thing that 50% of life is going to suck. That's Mm. just the experience of being human. 50% of life is not going to feel good, but you can still feel okay in the midst of all of that. And you can still feel that sort of, you've used the phrase peace in the background, which I think you said is Eckhart Tolle. It is. That sense, right? I'm okay. Things are fine. I will get to the other 50% soon. That is wonderful. And I think so, that, I think what Brooke Castillo and, um, oh, what's her name? That she, Byron Katie, what, what their teachings really help me understand is when you say, Something needs to change and it's probably me. We're not talking about your fundamental character. We're not talking about your skills even. Usually it's just changing the way you think, changing the way you think about your thoughts or your emotions and just letting go. Like I love uh, Byron Katie's like, well, what would I be without this thought? If I spend all my time thinking I'm happy because my husband's a jerk, like what if I was just wrong? What then? What does that mean? What if I just let go of that? Or what if I spend all my time thinking I'm not happy because I need to lose 10 more pounds? Like, but what if I'm, what if I'm just wrong? Cause human beings are wrong all the time. But I do think there's, you know, I probably don't need to tell this to anybody listening to this podcast, but I do think there's just like a whole subset of, of humans on this planet who think, um, you know, every problem is mine to individually solve. Everything is unique to me. 
Um, there's no reason to like run some analysis on like maybe behavioral problems, psychological issues, or cultural messages. Like there's, it's just, you know, everything is unique to me and I need to power through it, which I find exhausting. Actually, I think that's a huge part of the recovery mindset, which I love. My friend told me, oh, what did she, she said, it's something she learned in her brother's recovery that was like, how the individualization of Mm, the the myth of individualization i don't i don't remember the the exact terminology but it's like the idea that basically you are not unique you work the steps of recovery because this is what works for human beings your problems are not special your particular personality is not unique you don't need to figure out your own way through recovery you just need to work the steps like everybody else and I think some people that makes them feel extremely vulnerable. But in my experience, the like the release in the idea that like I need to figure out everything, how it works for me. So empowering to just to be like, oh, good. I have this universe of human knowledge I can just tap into and see what works for me. And isn't that awesome? Yeah, I think that gets to it's not that you change your fundamental character. It's that you discover your fundamental character. Which is shared with you... the rest of humanity. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The more you uncover it, the less inclined you are to believe that you're so special. Exactly. And you're so and, – and that you're not just you're so special like in the give me all the trophy sense, but you're so special like you're such a problem sense either. You're mm, not. Nope. Right? You're not either of those things. Nope. And that's, and that's awesome. really freeing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so awesome, you guys. It's like when you like the only thing on since this I don't I feel like this is relevant because this was an Oprah podcast. My only thing as I look back on my two decades of watching Oprah every single day at four o'clock is I got the message. And I'm not seeing that was always what she was sending every time. But what I tell people is like, you know, I think my mother's generation who she was primarily talking to really needed to hear. Find your own path. Find your own pa- passion. You are an individual and there's worth in that and, you know, build some of your life around that. However, it's sort of terrifying to hear that for, as a young adult all the way through adulthood, like, find your passion. It started to feel like pressure. It was like a lot of pressure. Find your passion. Figure out exactly what's going to make you happy for the rest of your life. Like, that was really not the answer either. And that was not super helpful. So, you know... Releasing myself from that and realizing that, uh, you know, humanity has been struggling with these questions. I'm not a special snowflake. It's much easier to just tap into our shared experiences and our shared wisdom, be it through faith, be it through books, be it through psychology or behavioral economics, whatever the hell tool you want to use is so it's really empowering. I don't know many people who got anything right the first time, Mm. honestly. I don't know many people who found their passion before 40. Mm -hmm. I think that it's really hard. And we set really high bars for ourselves as young people who've grown up in this culture where that message was being delivered. It's still the right message. I think that sometimes we just need to hear the right message at the right time for us. And that's the truth about changing things in your life as well. I have dieted. So many times I have dieted and dieted and dieted and it is miserable. I don't step on a scale anymore ever because it makes me absolutely miserable. But I have noticed for the past few months as I have gotten really clear about what I want my life to be about, I am able now to change the way I'm eating and not feel deprived at all. Mm. 
I feel now like everything I'm doing is a choice, that it is in many ways a spiritual practice. I don't have any resentment. And the handful of times that I have deviated from the path that I promised myself at the beginning of the year to have a Diet Coke, just to be clear, I haven't felt guilty about it because it does feel like this is part of my journey instead of this is a stupid diet and I'm going to feel guilty if I break it, but I hate doing it. When is it going to be over? That shift in where I'm coming from has changed all of the pieces. I don't know that I would have known what kind of desk to make for myself in a home office two years ago. I desperately wanted to quit my job then, but I couldn't answer to do what, and I wouldn't have known how to get started on that path. So I think that what needs to change that's probably me is really getting clear about what I want my life to be. Mm-hmm. All the strategies in the world aren't going to make a difference until you're really clear about that. Yeah, that's so true. And you know, what your life ha- what you want your life to be can be as s- specific or general, I think as you need it to be right there. If you can only see, you know, what you want your life to be like tomorrow. Like tomorrow I want to be able to get out of bed at this time or go to bed at this time or just not beat myself up for six hours straight. Great. That's a, that's a good start. You know what I mean? Like whatever little step you have to start with. And I think that's that, I mean, that's the recovery model too, one day at a time. Right. Like I think that you, and I think the power of recovery is that it gives you, it almost gives you that model, right? It gives you a model to strive for, which is either sobriety or, um, whatever form that takes, be it food or alcohol, drugs, sex, um, whatever your drug of choice is. And, you know, just because there's not recovery models for smartphones, although let's be real, that's probably coming for all of us. Um, or other, other forms of distraction or numbing doesn't mean that those, that same sort of model can apply, which is, you know, you're looking for recovery. You're looking for sobriety from whatever you want, whatever you're using to numb and taking that a day at a time, looking, looking to other people as sponsors or mentors for that life you want to kind of inspire. I mean, I think that's super powerful. And again, a book that really changed the way I think about all of this is a book called Stumbling Towards Happiness in which he argues Human beings think we think we're special. We think this sounds mean when I say it. I sound like a like bright bardian when I keep saying I think we're special snowflakes. It's not how I mean it. But, you know, we think that we need to crack the code for every single decision we need to make. Like, no, you don't. Somebody the smartest thing you can do is ask someone who's been there before like who's doing it right now. If you're thinking about having a kid, ask somebody with a newborn. If you're thinking about getting married, ask a newlywed or ask somebody who's been married 50 years. Like I love one of my favorite parts they talk about in the book is that people, when they're online dating, if given the choice between like seeing this person's incredibly huge um, resume and psychological profiles or just talking to an ex-girlfriend, People choose the other info. No, just talk to the ex-girlfriend. You're probably not that different. Like we're more alike than we are different. So just look at that. Listen to the other human being and then make a judgment because, you know, you're just it's your problems are not as unique as they think you think they are. And I like I said, I just think that's a total central message of recovery. That's what I love about this. 
I also love this idea of I don't know how to do this, but something inside me does. It reminds me of another Brooke Castillo thing. She always says, you know, if you don't know something, what if you did know? And you just keep asking yourself, what if I did know until you get the answer that you know that you have inside you? And I think that's just really comforting and powerful and something that is a good reminder for me to follow my intuition more than I have in the past. Yeah, that's a big thing. Um, the other person I like who does it a lot is Just Lively. Like she talks, a lot, she does a lot of like online classes about following your intuition. And you do. It's it's like, I mean, honestly, it's so much like the Marie thing. I think tapping into like, am I leaning into this or am I leaning out of that? I mean, that is huge. Have you, Sarah, experienced, so we've talked before on the podcast about how we're both doing the year without shopping. Are you experiencing that as a form of recovery? Hmm. Let me think about this. Um, no, I don't know if I'd call it a form of recovery as more than I, as more just behave. I mean, it's like everything I do, which is I take a more sort of behavior modification approach. Like I do a lot of tracking. Like it was so funny when you were talking about the scale, like the fi- when I finally successfully lost this, like pa- this poundage I've been battling since I had kids is when I got a dang scale and, ma- and weighed myself every morning. Like I just do a lot. I do much better with tracking and close attention and being like, okay, what's the pattern here? When do I lean on this? When do I want to do it? Like I, I'm a really sort of like patterns, process, habits person to see how, like, like I said, like when I'm leaning on it also, because I just don't, I, I would never, I would never describe myself as using shopping to numb. Cause I don't freaking like to shop. What I do use is purchases to solve problems in a quick way. I'm like, Oh, that somebody says this is awesome for this. I'm gonna buy it. Um, when I really need to assess, like, is spending that money causing another problem, Sarah, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I think for shopping for me is more along the lines of just changing my behaviors in the moment. I'm looking at you, Amazon app and assessing how my thinking about spending generally, if that makes sense. What about you? Yeah, I'm experiencing it as a form of recovery, not because I was a shopaholic and I I don't, I don't think I was, but I think what I realize is that I use buying things in general as a way to celebrate um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. solve problems, distract me. Yep. You know, I, I, I do like to look at things and decide that I need them. And for me, what it keeps calling out to me is what you learn on your yoga mat. I have everything I need right here. Mm-hmm. I say that to my yoga students all the time. For this hour, you have everything you need right here. And I feel like trying to do the year without shopping is saying, in my life, you have everything you need right here. You don't need anything else. And that has been pretty transformative in a very short period of time, not because I have wanted to hit them all, but it helps me realize how many times a day even I think about, well, what if I got this? Mm -hmm. And then coming back to, no, you don't need that. You have everything you need right here. I mean, it's really been striking to me what a difference that makes. Well, I think the celebration, what I really, I had that sort of come to Jesus moment with celebrations when I realized that I was teaching my kids every positive thing in life we celebrate with sugar, everything. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't want to teach my children this. 
I had a really sort of, uh, probably about a year, I guess probably not soon, honestly, not soon after we did the whole 30 that I thought, do I have a really great way to celebrate things beyond like, I just had this thing in my mind, like you either celebrate with a purchase, you celebrate with sugar, you celebrate with alcohol. Um, I just thought like, well, dang, how do you celebrate something? Like I had to really like go back down to zero and think how in my life and what do I want to teach my children about how do you celebrate something positive happening to you? It's kind of hard to think about, honestly. I'm not really sure I still have a great answer because I don't think our culture has a great answer about how we how we just celebrate. And maybe because we're we think it has to be an activity and it can't just be a feeling. And I think honestly, if I'm when I really think about it, the reason I do that is because Sarah walks around with a constant, pretty bad case of foreboding joy, which is Brene Brown's thing. Like something good happens to you and you're like, okay, we're definitely all going to die in a brain crash now because that's how the universe works. Like there's only an allotted amount of happiness. (laughs) And when you feel too much of it, that means you're going to be punished. Um, And so I think celebrating through sugar, through purchasing, through alcohol um, became a numbing to the vulnerability I feel in truly happy moments, right? Because I, you know, I feel that joy. I'm celebrating these people I love. And there's really no way to feel that, that embrace of your life, that just fullness of your life without feeling vulnerable. If if somebody's figured it out, lay it on me because I sure haven't. And I, you know, I, I don't remember, I think it might've been Tara Brock who had a meditation on this. And she talked about envisioning a, like a clear crystal and just feeling the water, like run through the clear, clear crystal. Just let that motion fill you up, breathe into it, lean into it. I think Brene Brown talks about this too. Like don't seize up, don't tighten up. Don't try to grab it. It's like sand. The harder you grab, the more it slips away. You have to just be in it. And that's, I mean, it's hard. It, it, it sounds so, I mean, I want to roll my eyes at myself that I'm sitting here talking about how hard it is to be truly joyful and happy, but it is kind of, it is, it, it always makes me a little bit nervous. And so I think I do use and have in the past and I've gotten better about recognizing the fact that I use sugar or, or a purchase or alcohol to be like, well, this is how we mark this happy occasion. I have no foreboding joy whatsoever. I don't that know is not how you I do that. How do you do that? I don't know how what you do that. What I have is something else, which is um, avoiding whatever vulnerability comes along with a strong emotion through people pleasing. Mm. So I am not a celebrant. I am the maker of the celebration. Mm. Right. I host the great party and then I don't really participate in it. I am the person who writes the congratulatory note, not the recipient of the congratulatory note. Mm. And what I have come to realize is that people pleasing is very much a drug of choice for me, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't serve me. And more than that, that it doesn't serve anybody else, that it's manipulative, that it prevents me from having real relationships with people, that it deprives people of the opportunity to know me for real. That it deprives me of the opportunity to know me for real. And so I think that in a lot of ways, I am in recovery from people pleasing 
because it has truly been standing between me and real joy and and real inner peace in a lot of ways, not to use a trite phrase. And in that way, I'm trying to take my celebrations now more selfishly than I have before. So I'm going to celebrate with a long shower. I'm going to celebrate by saying, I need an hour to go upstairs and have a yoga practice by myself. I'm going to light this candle now, whatever, but it's not, I'm going to eat some food or plan a thing or buy a thing. Mm. It is, I'm just going to be here with myself and feel this and feel proud of whatever I did. Right. And that's, that's been hard. Have you ever heard of Brene Brown when she talks about people pleasing and the, in the, the giving basically, which is if you can never accept help with an open heart, then you really are never giving help with an open heart. Like if you cannot accept help, you're never really giving help to other people. Have you ever heard her talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent true. I really do. I, when I think about how many people feel a different relationship with me than I feel with them, Mm. it creates a profound sense of sadness and, and guilt for me, honestly. I mean, I I've had, but let me tell you, I think that being a person, I am a person who has absolutely no problem asking for help. Um, I don't know where that came from because, and I've had some serious knockdown drag outs with my mother in which she says like, well, I would never ask my mother for that. And I'm like, okay, but I am, and you shouldn't guilt me for asking. You can say no, because here's the, here's what I run up against because I'm a person that asks for help. When you run up against a people pleaser and they're not willing to say no, then there's this, this terrible trade-off, right? In which, you know, well, I can't control the fact that you won't be saying no, but now I feel like I'm exploiting you, which I think this is a really good thing not to go back to the Gretchen Rubin camp, but like realizing in particular, cause I do think, I don't think it's a personality flaw. I think it's just a personality, like the obliger that just they're motivated externally. And I've ever since we've done that test and I've realized my husband is an as obliger, I try to be more cognizant of like, Cause I went and I, and I got better at it, but I I went through so much of my life being like, well, I'm we're all adults here. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. And I think that that I've had to realize like, no, that's not fair. Cause some people, it's really difficult to say no. And I should be respectful of that. But it is hard when you're a person that asks for help because you don't think you're doing anything wrong. And you're like, oh, I'm just asking for help. And people who can't say no, or people are just sort of, especially as a woman, especially as a woman, like, I can't believe you asked for help. Why? I needed help. Was it better ask for help? Well, because it shows you that those of us who chronically people please build up resentment. Mm-hmm. We just do. Even if we don't want to, we just do. Because when everything is one-sided, you can't help but be resentful of mm-hmm. that. The work, though, is realizing it's one-sided because I made it this way. Mm -hmm. Something needs to change. It's probably me. There you go. I made it one-sided. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it it is. I think that, and, you know, for me, being a person who's comfortable asking for help, like, I'm not saying it's always like a fun experience. Like, you definitely get burned and you definitely... I live on that, you know, as Beth says, the emotional edge. I got a lot of emotions accessible at any moment. And it is hard when people, I was telling somebody the other day, I just feel like Daniel Tiger is walking me through every existential crisis. Like I could definitely wake up every morning and watch that one about your friend doesn't want to play with you. That's okay. 
It's a good one. It's so good. I just need to hear find something s- else to do. Find something else to do. <laughs> I just need to hear that. See, I need to hear that every morning. Like I need somebody to walk up to me, hold my hand and be like, hey, if you reach out and your friend doesn't want to play with you or help you, that's okay. Find something else to do. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard to internalize? Why do we take everything so personally? It's so intense being a human. But Daniel Tiger is <laughs> here to walk you through it. It is intense. It, it is, is intense. And it, it's so and funny. Because it Go doesn't ahead. matter what side of the, the coin you're on. If you're the person asking for help and feeling like vulnerable because you asked for help and no one says, and you're afraid somebody's going to say no. Or if you're the person who just won't ask for help to begin with. You know what I mean? That's why I think this concept of recovery for non-addicts is so helpful. Mm-hmm. Because we all, at different points in our life, probably multiple times throughout the course of our lives, need to take some time to ask from what should I be detoxing right now? Word. And what can I gain from that process and share with others because of that process? And and I'll tell you that I 100% feel like I'm detoxing right now from food, from shopping, from being a workaholic, from people pleasing. I'm basically just saying, you know what? Put me away for a month or so. <laughs> Let me figure some things out. And I feel like it's coming really fast because I am ready to do that work. And, you know, we all have to be ready, too. That's the other thing. I don't think you can just leap into something. You have to be ready. And I think that that's, you know, I think the most powerful experience. And I I heard somebody talking about this, I think, on the Robcast. And I think that's what you're doing right now is the reset. Like just a hard yep. reset on your life. And that's what I did when I said, I don't want to, I mean, I had a whole life in Washington, D.C. And then a month later, I had an entirely different, I'm talking, I didn't have a car. I have a car. I didn't have a house. I have a house. I was going to have a baby. I had a baby. Like moving from Washington, D.C. to Paducah. And it's, it's such an intense experience, but like, I kind of think everybody should do it at least once. It's a very, you learn who you are. You strip away those roles that you build into your identity and realize, nope, that's not my identity. Mm-mm, that's not who I am. And it's just, a, it's very empowering. I think it's, it, you know, it's sort of what we went back to with what Stephen Colbert was saying. Like it's happiness isn't the goal, man. It's like growth. Growth for me is the goal. And it's usually hard, but also opens up this whole other sort of world of emotion and, and happiness that you didn't even know was accessible until you go through something tough like that. I mean, I'm into it. I'm into it too. I know that change is scary for people. What I am finding in my life is that after I made the decision not to practice law anymore, every decision after that got a little bit easier. Mm. Every big change gets a little bit easier. And probably you want to keep sort of upping the ante on those changes because you want to keep growing. Yeah. You want to keep growing more. Just like when you are doing con Marie, you're able to clean out more every successive time because you've had the experience and you just want to keep one. You want to keep pushing yourself. I've probably told this story on the podcast before somewhere. But, you know, Chad and I had this conversation where he said to me, what if you never know exactly what you want to do? What if you never find your thing that's going to be your thing for the rest of your life? And I said, what if I don't? Because I think I probably won't. I think I will want to keep evolving and changing and doing different things and learning what I can learn from those things. That, to me, sounds like a much more productive way to use my short time on this earth than having spent 30, 40 years doing the same thing every day. Well, it's like Jim Carrey in that documentary about his dad. Like, you can fail at something you hate. Like, that's definitely a thing that happens to people. 
Well, can I jump in on that for a second? Yeah. You got to define failure for yourself, too. And I think for me, failure is inertia. It is stagnation. It is it is refusing to go through these recovery periods. If I am the same person from 25 until the day I die, that to me is failure, even if that person is wildly successful and really appreciated by other people. Yeah, totally. Because that doesn't feel like I've lived my best life. We have this amazing woman in my community. She's literally like a one-person safety net to the poverty-stricken in our community. She runs a kitchen. I mean, I, I, there's, there were no words big enough to talk about the depth of kindness and generosity and the impact this woman has on our community. And we, I sat next to her at a football game. It was the first football game from our new city, our new merged county school, which was a big deal. It took away these four high schools that were, um, you know, huge parts of people's identity in the community, merged them into one community and they were paying the city school. And I sat down next to her and I said, isn't this exciting? Everyone was sort of fraught about it. But I said, isn't this exciting? And she looked at me, she goes, I love it. I love change. And I gave her the biggest hug. And I was like, Sally, you are my hero. Like, I just love yeah. She She even hesitated. She just looked at me. And she was like, yep, I love change. And I was like, you are amazing. From like, I want to be that person. I want to be the lady. Like, every time somebody sits to me and is like, oh, my God, this is so scary. And I'm like, you know what? I love change. <laughs> I love that, too. I think that's a good note to wrap up on. We love change. We do. Let's all embrace the changes. And look, I, I guess I said wrap up and then I have an, an asterisk. That is not to say that if you do the same job your entire career or say married to the same person or live in the same place that you have failed. If those things make you grow, hooray. Mm-hmm. It should just be about growth, right? It should be that you aren't distracting from your real life or buffering in some way. You just don't want to be stagnant. If you can continue to grow in the place where you've been planted, I mean, hallelujah. And please send me some email because I would like to understand how that works, too. Yeah. Know thyself. It's all about knowing thyself, not avoiding self, knowing self. That's the difference. Yeah. So I'm going to share something that my husband sent me. Um, It is called The Paradox of Our Time. It's been attributed a lot to George Carlin. We have found that George Carlin actually did not write it. Jeff Dixon posted it in 1998. It has been attributed to a bunch of different authors. We have no idea who wrote it, but it's good. So we're going to read it. The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences but less time. We have more degrees but less sense, more knowledge but less judgment, more experts yet more problems, more medicine but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get up too tired read too little, watch TV too much, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We have learned how to make a living, but not a life. Love it. I think I'm going to stop there. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all.